Alongside from Standard Club. Hello and welcome to Alongside, a brand new podcast series from Standard Club for the shipping industry across the world. I'm your host, Chloe Tilly, and each episode we'll be looking at different topics and meeting special guests. Our focus this time is the notorious Northwest Passage, and one of our guests has been on a milestone journey through it. Joining us from Vancouver is Captain Duke Snyder, ice navigator, founder and CEO of Martech Polar Consulting, who specialise in ice operations in polar waters. Hi there, Duke. Hi there, Chloe. Thanks for having me here. And in Montreal is Tim Keane, Senior Manager, Arctic Operations and Projects at FedNav, who is a member of the Standard Club. Hi, Tim. Hello, Chloe. Thank you for having me. Now, Duke, before we start our voyage into the Northwest Passage, you're going to have to pardon the pun, but as an icebreaker, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Most of my life, uh, 44 years at sea, has been in the ice somewhere or other. I, I began my first exposure to ice operations in the Canadian Arctic on the Mackenzie River back in the early 80s, and then graduated to Coast Guard icebreakers in the Northwest Passage proper, then on the commercial ships, uh, and then eventually came back to form uh, my own company uh, the, to provide ice navigation experience. I've got a little bit of time in the ice, particularly <laughs> in our own Northwest Passage. So, Duke, can you set the scene for us in terms of the geography of the Northwest Passage? Absolutely. Um, the Northwest Passage really is uh, a number of different routes through the, the maze of the Canadian archipelago and uh, Canada's Arctic. Uh, depending on how you look at it, uh, there are seven different routes uh, through various channels. And uh, the, the navigational challenge uh, is first in, in selecting which route is appropriate for your ship and your voyage. Um, and uh, then understanding that it's going to be a maze of, of different routes, tracks, uh, courses as you go through. The the area being at the, the farthest north is one of the remotest operating areas in the world. So for the most part, operators in, in this region have to be prepared to be on their own in a come as you are. You have to bring everything you need with you because you're not going to get it up there. You mentioned earlier the amount of time you spent in the ice. What are the icy conditions like there? Global climate change notwithstanding, um, we are not getting periods of massive lack of ice or no ice. What we're seeing is uh, ice in places that we've never seen it before. As the ice in the polar pack is reduced, it, it's allowed the heavier stuff to actually come into the Canadian archipelago and, and uh, be encountered, as I said, in places we haven't seen it before. Uh, we can have good ice one day, one month, one year, uh, and that's totally different the next year. So we, we have to be aware of that variability of ice. Tim, I want to bring you in because I'd like you to tell us a little bit about FedNav and in particular your Arctic operations. FedNav is Canada's largest dry bulk shipping company. And notwithstanding the fact that uh, the Arctic or the Northwest Passage is uh, very much in the news these days, we have been operating in the Arctic as a Canadian company for more than 60 years now. Tim, could you tell us a little bit about what the appeal was, the draw for you to get involved and work in this sector so successfully and also maybe a little bit about how things have changed? 
how things have changed. I mean, they've evolved on all fronts from the regulatory process has matured. The, the types of ships have matured when, you know, back in the day when ships first started, when we first started going up there in the 1950s, I wasn't there, but so I'm told, um, you know, the ships were generally open water cargo ships and they were, they went north in the summer and they followed the the retreat of the ice and then they were chased out of the Arctic by the ice in, in, in the autumn as the need for expanding the seasons came so did the capabilities and abilities of the types of ships that we have and the types of ships that we have had built to withstand the the rigours of the of the trade. And Duke, in terms of benefits, what's important about the Northwest Passage? We, we often hear that uh, the Northwest Passage or the Northern Sea Route, for that matter, are are going to be these highways across the Arctic that are are going to save uh, operators uh, thousands of miles in uh, distance uh, and thus in fuel. But we forget uh, very quickly that. Uh, it's more than just uh, a short distance. When you're faced with being slowed or even stopped by ice, you know, planned voyages can take much longer um, and require more fuel to work the ice. So even the fuel savings are, are quickly uh, taken up by diversions or, or delays. Uh, increases in massive increases in cost for insurance uh, when one operates north of 60 uh, add to the, the, the cost. So that benefit of zipping through and, and saving thousands of miles in fuel cost that doesn't exist. Um, what is there uh, is the opening of availability of another route that for the, the right ship, the right cargo, can provide uh, certain um, cost savings or time savings. But it has to be a ship that's well built, it is designed for the operation with the people on board that know how to deal with the additional risks that, that come with operating in a potential ice environment. Tell us a little bit about the polar code, because I know that you sometimes have concerns that it's almost a, a tick box exercise and sometimes people can fill out all the forms, they can be allowed to go, but perhaps aren't as prepared as they should be to navigate the Northwest Passage. Absolutely, Chloe. Uh, you know, both Tim and I were in uh, IMO and on many long nights in the, the uh, subcommittees and working groups working on the development of the Polar Code uh, in the last decade. And it has become, yes, the first mandatory uh, IMO instrument for regulating operations in the, the Arctic and the Antarctic. But because it's the first crack at it. it it's a foundation garment it, it is at the very basic level uh, and it it has not been able to get to the full detail um, you can't just operate in the arctic looking at the polar code and saying i've gone check 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 as you point out uh, you have to also look at national and regional regulations which will add a little bit more meat to that um, but you also have to understand that that um, because the polar code was put together as a consensus agreement certain pieces are at that low level and one of the examples of that is the the training and the certification that's required the the Polar Code training, though very, very in-depth uh, and laid out in very clear model courses, um, misses one piece, and it doesn't ensure that uh, the 
um, the student who goes through the training and eventually gets a certificate of polar uh, waters training has any experience in or around ice. And very, let's call it naive operators will go and think, okay, we've checked the box, we've got people that have polar coat training. But then they, they come across the ice, they don't really understand how to operate in it, and there's a huge gap. Tim, give us an idea, if you would, of the number of vessels that are currently using the route. The route is not being used very very frequently, but over the years it's been used intermittently and opportunistically from a commercial point of view. Uh, the vast v- majority of transits that have occurred of the Northwest P- Passage have been by pleasure craft and adventure, adventure shipping. There have been literally but a handful of commercially viable transits. What do operators have to mitigate against those risks presented by the passage? Um, A long time ago, somebody said when we were contemplating some piece of business in in the north is to, you know, the best way to approach it is as a prudently uninsured. So if you are satisfied that you were doing everything right and have considered all of the possibilities for the environment in which you're operating, then you should be good to go. If you if you don't have that level of confidence, then you shouldn't be there. One of the the um, the sort of disappointing things we see is that potential new operators will look at the polar code and look at a potential voyage through and they'll think, oh we're gonna do this. And then they they come to us and say, okay, we'd like to, to plan this. And we sit down and start to go through a process. Well, you need months and months to actually do an operational assessment as required under the Polar Code properly to put in place the Polar Waters Operational Manual properly for the ship. It's not something you can just suddenly decide, I want to go through the Northwest Passage. You know, Tim's company has been operating in the North uh, for decades, and uh, you know, much of their experience is what the Polar Code is built on. But newer operators have to be aware that it takes time and effort to ensure that your ship and your crew are properly prepared and able to meet the requirements. Let's talk a little bit about the role of technology, because we're all witnessing technology's exponential growth. And I wonder, Duke, how much the advance of technology could advance the viability of the passage itself? We're seeing improved uh, the satellite imagery capability that allows us to have a better uh, understanding of exactly what the ice conditions are like, uh, the the capability of, of software uh, on board, voyage planning software like IceNav that allows us to integrate uh, the most up-to-date satellite imagery, ice charts, radar imagery uh, on an, an Ectus-like planning platform for voyages. Um, onboard uh, radar capabilities, all of these things are coming together to, to give us a better understanding of the picture where we're operating, as well as the capability of the ships. Well, thank you both. And Tim, you were part of a landmark sailing through the passage, and we're going to hear from you about that unique experience next. Alongside... Now, Tim, you have the distinction of being on board the first cargo ship to journey through the Northwest Passage without an icebreaker escort. Tell us more about that. Um, it was in 2014 
uh, when we had the opportunity to take a cargo from northern Quebec to China. It was done at a time of the nominally open water, uh, so it was done in early September. We did the transit from Deception Bay to off of Saks Harbor in, in, the, in the western Canadian Arctic in about seven days, and in that time we never saw physically another ship. So explain to us how the ship got through without the assistance of an icebreaker. Again, with ample planning, um, take a step back. The, the ship itself was a Polar Class 4, um, the Nunavik. So the po- a Polar Class 4, in layman's terms, basically means that the ship is capable of navigating independently in thick first-year ice. Thick first-year ice goes up to 220 centimetres thick. Um, however, at the time of year when we performed the voyage, um, it was nominally open water. We encountered ice only in a, uh, for a very small portion of the voyage when we went through Prince of Wales Sound. Otherwise, we were able to take what is known as the, the go-around, not-through approach. Duke, I want to bring you in at this point because this is not a place you want to be if something goes wrong with your vessel. Absolutely not. Um, as I spoke earlier, uh, it is one of the most remote areas of the world. And as Tim spoke in seven days, seven, not seeing another ship, uh, the the assistance that is uh, available is usually days away. Air resources for search and rescue are, are based in the, the south of Canada and take up to 18 hours to get into the area. Uh, there are no tugs of opportunity around the corner so that if you come to grief, Uh, you are on your own. That is very true. Tim, what would you say could be the benefits for shipping and trade if, and I appreciate it's a big if, the Northwest Passage becomes easier to transit? There are not the numbers of ships um, that are out there that are capable of of transiting the Northwest Passage with with great predictability for more than a few weeks per year. It's not something that's going to happen probably in my career's lifetime, so I'm not uh, I'm not really keen to see it happen. It really does come down to a very very narrow uh, light ice period of time in measured in weeks, and and I think one of the bellwethers is uh, an example of a few years ago where the cruise company Crystal. Uh, ran a, a low ice class ship, Crystal Serenity, through the Northwest Passage uh, in two following seasons. And they, they haven't followed up with that ship since because the risk of not completing the voyage due to ice, they're, like many other operators that, that wish to operate in a passenger cruise expedition, they're building much uh, smaller vessels that are higher ice class that are more capable but that's not going to, to result in a massive increase in business. It'll result in, a, in an incremental increase. You know, the, the costs of ensuring that you have a ship that is built uh, and uh, staffed to crewed to the level that's necessary to meet the eventualities is going to be a deterrence uh, for most operators for many years. If you look at all of the major climate change models, they all indicate over you know the decades to come that um, how it's going to roll out is that we're going to see the northern sea route be predominantly open first as ice reduces decade to decade, then the cross the Arctic, the transarctic. As long as there is ice in the Arctic, 
the prevailing currents and the systems will drive it into the Canadian archipelago. It's going to be easier sooner to go simply right across the top of the Arctic than it is to transit the Northwest Passage uh, for decades to come. As far as disrupting the, the sea routes, I never say never, but I would say never <laughs> for the for the Northwest Passage in the foreseeable future. You know, each year... A few ships will avail themselves potentially of it, but compared to the thousands and thousands of ships that uh, use the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal, it's a drop in the bucket. Well, thank you both so much for speaking with us. It's been great talking to you both and for getting such a fascinating insight into our subject. So, Duke, thanks for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. And Tim, thank you. My pleasure. Do join us next time when we'll continue to discuss the shipping industry with our expert guests. Our topic will be the importance of the initial response to a major shipping casualty. Also, you can subscribe to this series so you won't miss an episode. From me, Chloe Tilly, Captain Duke Snyder and Tim Keane, it's thanks for listening and goodbye. Alongside from Standard Club, back soon. 